gonna be weird yes hi i'm amy and i'm chris and, and we're, we're sonosphere you're listening to wyxr 91.7 on your fm dial the turmoil ceased and a great quiet settled down which had not reached the levee, had been drowned. Those in one-story houses had taken to the roofs and the trees. Over everything was silence, deadlier because of the strange, cold sound of the currents, gnawing at foundations, hissing against walls, creaming and clawing over obstructions. Will Percy.
Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. And we're wherever you are every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. Today's episode is a harrowing tale of a natural disaster that ravaged much of Middle America, especially the South. The Great Flood of 1927 was one of the most catastrophic floods in our nation's history. In the summer of 1926, heavy rains started to fall along the Mississippi River. These heavy rains kept up, and in March of 1927, levees started to break, which led to flooding from Illinois to Mississippi, displacing nearly 650,000 people and destroying 16 million acres of land. The flood overwhelmingly affected African Americans as they made up approximately half a million of those displaced. Also, 95% of the workforce was African American. The vast majority of the country perceived the Red Cross as heroes performing great feats to save the poor South. In reality, as we will hear from Scotty Parrish, the Red Cross did nothing more than maintain the status quo. In this episode, we will discuss the formation of the Mississippi River, the events that led to the flood, the Red Cross's response and how they use the media to shape public opinion, as well as blues songs that helped inform the public about the human turmoil that was a direct result of the flood. Listen in as we hear from Christopher Morris, Scotty Parrish, and David Evans about this extraordinary event, right here on WYXR 91.7. It's interesting how it was formed. It's not a valley in the in the traditional sense of a of a river valley that is to say it it's not created by the river itself the way say the colorado created the grand canyon it's a valley that was formed by the intercontinental collisions tectonic shifts and it's all part of the same shift that when what is now north america collided with the eurasian continent And the result was the uplift of part of the continent that created the Appalachian Mountains, but a buckling downward in the center of the continent that created what we know of as the the Mississippi Valley. So that low-lying area was there for a long time. Christopher Morris, I'm a professor of history at the University of Texas at Arlington. 12,000 years or so ago, as the Ice Age ended on the northern third of the North American continent, all the water from that ice started flowing down the valley. At first, the, the river was a braided stream. It flowed very fast in several streams that went back and forth and it was full of sediment that had been gathered by the, by the glaciers and that was picked up by the moving water and it would be dropped. And then one of the streams would move and it would cross over another stream. And eventually some of these places where the sediment had been dropped would be cut through by a fast moving stream as it jumped its course. And this went on for a few thousand years until the water began to peter out and it slowed down 
and settled into a single channel and became more or less the Mississippi River that we know, or at least the Mississippi River <laughs> that was until the Army Corps of Engineers started managing it and channeling it and levying it and, and so forth. when the river floods, it overflows its banks and spreads over the countryside, the heaviest sediment falls out of the water first because once the, the water gets over its banks, it slows down. So the sediment starts to fall out of it, the heaviest first and the largest volume. So that collects along the edges of the river. Over time, you get what are referred to as natural levees. So the highest ground is right along the, the river. And anyone who's been to New Orleans knows that the French Quarter is on the natural levee. And that's the part that thankfully, for a historian, I guess, doesn't flood. The most valuable property is always along the, the river and the poorer neighborhoods are in the low-lying areas um, away from the neighborhood and they from the river and they flood. I was walking down the levee with my head hanging low, looking for my sweet mama, but she ain't here no more. That's why I'm crying, Mississippi heavy water blue. Lord, Lord, Lord. I'm so blue, my house got washed away, and I'm crying how long for another I'm Scotty Parrish. I'm a professor at the University of Michigan in the English department and the program in the environment. I'm sitting here looking at all of this mud, and my gal got washed away in that Mississippi flood. That's why I'm crying, Mississippi heavy water blue. In the fall of 1926, there was an unusual amount of rain and, and kind of intense weather events, which continued throughout the winter, putting intense pressure on not only the Mississippi River, but also the Ohio River system, which, as you know, joins, joins up with the Mississippi at Cairo, Illinois. And so this was really a year-long event, beginning in the fall of 1926. And the biggest breaks happened in April in Mississippi, there was kind of a first wave of high water and then a second wave in late spring. And the waters really didn't recede till late summer of 1927. And it took months longer after that for sharecroppers, for example, to be returned to the land upon which they worked to continue, you know, plant cotton and sugar for the next season. That's why my book is titled The Flood Year 1927, which is a phrase I borrow from William Faulkner's really amazing novel, If I Forget the Jerusalem, or sometimes it's called Wild Palms. That's where that phrase comes from, the flood year, 1927, because it lasted so long. Not but mud and water, far as I could see. I need some sweet mama, 
Come and shake that thing with me. That's why I'm crying. Mississippi heavy water blue. Listen here, you men. One more thing I like to say. Ain't no women's out here, but they all got washed away. That's why I'm crying. Mississippi heavy water blue. It's interesting to think about when the flood began, even as it was being reported in 1927. And you could say it began in the 19th century, but it has to do with engineering choices that were made when the levee system was built all along the Mississippi River and the decision to have a levees only policy along the Mississippi watershed which meant that though a river likes to spread and it's very natural for a river to periodically overflow, the idea of a levees only policy sought to make the Mississippi River levee system into a kind of chute that would empty the center of the continent of its water in, in a supposedly efficient manner while keeping safe temporarily those lands outside the levee, it meant that because there were no places for the water to go along the levee system, when there was a levee break, it was a catastrophic break. So it was the levee system design that was in part the cause of the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. There were also environmental choices that were made in the late 19th and early 20th century. For example, extensive deforestation in the upper watershed, kind of where I live in Michigan, but Michigan, Minnesota, and those areas were really clear cut. What forests do is that they act like great sponges to absorb water. When whole forests are cut down, you don't have the leaf litter and the root system and so on to absorb water. The other thing to the west of the river was the tall grass prairies were also cut down to make for wheat and corn monocultures. As part of that transformation, a lot of the wetlands were also drained in the Mississippi watershed system. So all these places that used to hold water naturally, forests, tall grasses that have deep, deep, deep root systems, pockets of water in swamps and so on, were eradicated. And so more water was flowing into the Mississippi River, and then there was the levees-only policy that was meant to contain all this water. And I 
way to bear. I couldn't You're tuned in to Sonosphere on WYXR 91.7 FM or on the web at WYXR.org. We'd like to remind you that WYXR is a nonprofit community radio station that thrives on your support. Yes, you, the listener. You can go to WYXR.org, see the ways you can donate and or volunteer so we can remain wherever you are. Today, we are featuring an episode about the Great Flood of 1927 with interviews by Christopher Morris, Scotty Parrish, and David Evans. And now we'll get back to Scotty Parrish's interview about the North-South divide during the flood crisis. The North's paternalistic response not only maintained the status quo, post-flood federal mismanagement intensified the powerlessness of the Southern sharecropper. We'll also discuss radio broadcast's role in shaping Americans' opinion about the Red Cross and the government's response to the flood. We'll hear the sentiment when we listen to the great blues songs of the times. So stay tuned right here on WYXR 91.7. of the Mississippi flood of 1927 is that it followed after World War I. There was significant reluctance on the part of U.S. citizens to involve themselves in World War I. Once President Wilson decided to become involved, there was an important effort on the part of the 
Ministry of Information to get the rest of the country on board with that war effort. And bagging all up in my door. The water was all up round my window and bagging all up in my door. Soon thereafter, the public relations industry or specialization was developed in the 1920s. And then with nationally syndicated newspapers and the radio system became nationwide in the winter of the flood. In the winter of 1927, Herbert Hoover established a nationwide system of a radio network. There were these growing capacities in the first decades of the 20th century for so-called news to be created by the federal government or by the Red Cross, for example, or the War Office and have it disseminated through efficient and far-reaching mechanisms. The flood of 1927 was the first disaster event where the country could simultaneously listen to Herbert Hoover address them about the flood as it was unfolding. The Red Cross set up concentration camps that were used to keep the workforce in place. These camps distributed provisions to the landowners that held power over the sharecroppers and labor force. Those in the concentration camps were forced to work on the levees in order to receive these provisions. Black refugees who refused to work or attempted to escape the encampment were beaten or killed. One killing happened on May 1st as a National Guardsman shot and killed a black man trying to flee the camp in Vicksburg. As we will get into later, the Red Cross relied heavily on propaganda in order to maintain their image as saviors in the eyes of the public. Herbert Hoover, in particular, seized an opportunity to gain fervor from Americans. At this time, the Red Cross treated black refugees in the South as slaves. They didn't get adequate food and were forced to perform heavy labor under gunpoint. And many black Southern refugees were held in outdoor camps with no promise or hope of their homes ever being rebuilt. Commentators, I think, in the wake of World War I also became suspicious of that governmental power to disseminate an opinion, a narrative, a set of facts. And so people like John Dewey, the philosopher, for example, who wrote a book called The Public and Its Problems, began to worry about, about the complexity of world events that the United States, for example, could be drawn into without fully understanding what they were getting into. So cloudy, so cloudy, I believe it's gonna rain. Whether the public had access to 
neutral information became a question in the 1920s in the wake of World War I. And in my book, I argue that the Red Cross, in combination with Herbert Hoover, who was put in charge of flood management by the President Alvin Coolidge, worked together to disseminate early on in the flood a unified narrative about what this disaster was. That narrative hung together for about a month. And what that narrative was, and it was often scripted by, by Northerners, and Herbert Hoover is a Northerner, was a story about Northerners coming to the rescue of the worthy victims of the South. And I found that very interesting in part because of the white Southern response to this narrative after about a month was skepticism that they felt that the flood had been humanly caused through the misconstruction of the Mississippi levee system and through these agricultural practices I mentioned earlier. It was Northern mismanagement and federal mismanagement that had created the flood in the first place. So they resented the, this representation on the part of the North as being heroic saviors of a suffering South. Oh, stop and listen. Don't you hear how the thunder roars? Oh, stop and listen. Don't you hear how the thunder roars? I'm so blue and lonesome. I'm standing in this water, wishing I had a boat. I'm standing in this water, wishing I had. the Red Cross and Herbert Hoover, they didn't understand their mission to restructure the hierarchy and the wealth distribution of the Delta. They understood their mission to restore the Delta to where it was. So Northern healthcare workers very much participated in that notion of entitlement to relief. And I, I was mentioning that in some cases, monies would be given out to landholders. And there's This was documented in Arkansas, who were meant to pass on that relief in terms of seed and other agricultural products to get the next crop in, in, in 1927. But they then charged the sharecroppers for this relief material. There was a top-down distribution within the Delta of these relief supplies that didn't bother or concern the Red Cross because Again, their understanding was to restore the hierarchy that existed before, where the landholders kept the sharecroppers dependent. There were commentators on the Colored Advisory Commission who noted this. Again, Richard Wright wrote about it in the 30s. He had a second flood story about it, family coming back after the flood and seeing the high watermark, you know, very high up in their cabin. All their furniture was destroyed. Their crop was destroyed. 
what that meant was greater indebtedness to their landholder. So it's 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 a very eerie kind of gothic story of the the way that the landscape had been remade by the flood and really how powerless the people returning to their property were and how the flood had not relieved them of any of their debt uh, but had just intensified it. Musicians presented the most accurate details about the Great Flood of 1927. There was greater public awareness of the atrocities happening along the Mississippi. Blues songs of the time captured these events and hardships that black people endured during the flood. Though many blues songs were made about the flood, we decided to showcase Backwater Blues by Bessie Smith. We spoke with David Evans about the origins of the song, how it became an anthem of the flood, and how the song inspired more musicians to sing about the flood. Today we've heard songs by Barbecue Bob, Memphis Minnie, Bessie Smith, and many of these blues songs featured artists like pianist James P. Johnson, who got their start with Black Swan Records in early 1920s. Sonosphere covered the short tenure of America's first Black-owned record label, Black Swan, and the opera singer who shares the label's name, Check it out at sonospherepodcast.com to hear the episode on the opera singer, Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, and stay tuned for the Black Swan record label episode, release in June. And I can't get no hearing from that Memphis girl of mine. What all in Arkansas, people screaming in Tennessee. Ah, oh, people screaming in Tennessee. If I don't leave Memphis, Backwater been all over for me. Paper stitch is raining. It has been for nights and days. Paper stitch is raining. Has been for nights and days. Thousand people stands on the hill. Looking down what he used to say. Yelling, standing, bleeding. Mama, why ain't got no home? Oh, Mama, we ain't got no home. Papa said to children, Blackwater left us all alone. Backwater's riding, I'm in my windows and doors. 
The 1927 flood of the Mississippi River and its uh, tributaries was probably the greatest natural disaster in American history uh, in terms of the geographical extent uh, and the damages and the uh, number of victims, uh, both deaths and injuries, and of course, uh, the very many uh, who were displaced uh, by the flood. It especially hit the Black community very hard because uh, the area where it struck was uh, at a very large Black population. I'm David Evans. I'm a professor emeritus of music from the University of Memphis, and I'm retired now, but I'm still active in uh, research, uh, especially with blues music and performing, although <laughs> haven't had too many gigs recently because of the virus. Bessie Smith, in her song, portrays herself as a sort of Black every woman, you know, the, the flood victim. Uh, she woke up and there was the flood waters coming in her door. In fact, the flood did strike overnight on Christmas and Christmas morning instead of Santa Claus, it was a flood uh, for thousands of people. And in fact, she describes thousands of people didn't have nowhere to go. And she went and stood on a high old lonesome hill and looked down on the place where her home used to be. Uh, I mean, th this was what typically happened in uh, floods. Uh, black people in many Southern towns uh, and cities, including Nashville, tended to be housed in the low-lying areas. And if the town or city was on a river, that meant occasional flooding. And uh, so it had a, a certain racial dimension. I mean, it's not overt in the songs, but Black people knew uh, exactly what was meant, you know, when she talks about trouble taking place in the lowlands at night. These factors plus her great popularity at the time are responsible for the resonance that the song had over the years. Screaming all over 
So as for Bessie Smith's song, uh, Backwater Blues, it was actually recorded before the flood struck. Uh, and it was about flooding in Nashville, Tennessee. I was able to reconstruct that fact uh, from some hints in the song and in the biographical information about Bessie Smith. Uh, a major flood struck Nashville on Christmas morning, 1926, and uh, Bessie Smith and her troop of entertainers uh, showed up in Nashville for scheduled performance a few days later, and they were forced to go from the train station to their lodging by boat. And in fact, they were initially lodged at an undertaker parlor near the theater where she was supposed to perform. And people asked her to sing the Backwater Blues. Well, of course, she didn't have a song that title, but she later composed uh, a Backwater Blues and recorded it in February 1927, a couple months uh, after her appearance in Nashville. The song, although it doesn't mention Nashville, uh, describes with considerable accuracy the flood there, which she probably got details not only from being in Nashville, but also from reading the newspaper accounts of the flood that had hit the city uh, two or three days before she arrived. The, her recording was made in February and was released a few weeks later, and then in late April 1927, as her song, her recording was on the market, the major flooding occurred uh, when the levee broke near Greenville, Mississippi. Of course, her song was perfectly timed <laughs> to, to become the hit song, a hit blues song of, of the flood. Since it didn't mention Nashville, it could be about flooding anywhere, and people took it and even her record company promoted it as a song about the uh, flood of the Mississippi River, where, whereas it was really about the Cumberland River in Nashville. So, so that's how the <laughs> biggest flood song came to be. And ironically, it wasn't really about the Mississippi flood at all. Uh, you, you could say that the Cumberland River flood, in a sense, fed into the rising waters that ultimately caused the Mississippi River flood. So there is a kind of connection. When it rained five days and the skies turned dark at night. When it rained five days and the skies turned dark at night. Then trouble taking place in the lowlands at night. I woke up this morning, can't even get out of my door. 
about five miles across the pond. I packed all my clothes, sold them in, and they rode me along. Her song was, it was really the first topical blues on a disaster, and it caused a, a flood, so to speak, of other topical blues, not only on the uh, 1927 Mississippi River flood, but many other disasters uh, in the following years by various blues singers. Bessie Smith at the time was the most popular blues singer in terms of record sales. Uh, she even had a substantial white following, which uh, blues, uh, black blues singers uh, rarely did at that time. And the record was a big hit because it was already out when the flood hit. And so uh, naturally it became a hit. And it's a great performance too. Uh, James P. Johnson plays wonderful piano on it. And uh, Bessie does a great vocal too. So yeah, it, it had all the ingredients to become an uh, enduring hit. I, I think about 50 other blues singers have made recordings of it in the years since then. It probably still continues to be performed. I don't know of any really recent recordings of it, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people still singing versions of it. It's been snowing 40 days and nights Lakes and rivers begin to freeze It's been snowing 40 days and nights Rivers and lakes begin to freeze 
Some places through my old hometown, water's up above my knees. Storm begin rising, and the sun begin sinking down. Storm begin rising, the sun begin sinking down. I says, mother and dad, pack your trunk. We ain't safe here in this town. When it lightning, my mind gets frightened. My nerves begin weakening down. When it lightning, my mind gets frightened. My nerves begin weakening down. And the shack where we was living began moving round. Women and children were screaming, said, Mama, where must we go? Women and children were screaming, saying, Lord, where must we go? The flood water have broke the levees and we ain't safe here no more. And begin cloud as dark as midnight, keep raining all the time. I say, oh, I wonder why the sun don't ever shine. And the way it keeps raining, it's driving me out my mind. Today we presented the story of possibly the worst natural disaster in our country's history. The Great Flood of 1927 was of epic proportion. The flood displaced 650,000 residents and destroyed 16 million acres of land. The toll wrought along the Mississippi River from Cairo to the Gulf of Mexico forced people to seek refuge in Red Cross concentration camps. These camps were run in a manner that kept up the status quo. Black men were forced to work on the levees in order to receive provisions. The levees were patrolled by armed National Guardsmen. If anyone tried to escape, they were severely beaten or killed. The government and Red Cross used technologies such as radio broadcasts to disseminate information about the flood. Northerners got on board with the narrative that they were helping the desperate South. The South rejected this notion as they saw very little relief, if any, at all. Blue songs of the day projected the struggles and tragedies in the Delta. We highlighted Bessie Smith and her song Backwater Blues today. Although it was not written about the flood of 1927, it was released just as the levees were breaking along the Mississippi. The song gained national notoriety in America. The song became an anthem of the flood and led the way to many more songs written about the Great Flood of 1927, as well as songs pertaining to other natural disasters. When you listen to any of the songs about the flood, you were transported there. You gain a perspective about those that were affected by the Great Flood. These songs are time capsules of a time of havoc and disillusion in black Southern America.
I get away this time, I will never come here again. My baby was crying I didn't have a thing to eat hey, I didn't have a thing to eat yeah, What I had come in Was everything I had down the street for mercy and it won't no boats around yeah, I was hollering for mercy and it won't no boats around yeah, it looks like people I've got to stay right here and drown When my house started shaking Started floating on down the stream Hey, my house started shaking Went floating on down the stream It was dark at midnight People began to holler and scream Thanks for tuning in to our episode on the Great Flood of 1927. Special thanks to Christopher Morris, David Evans, and Scotty Parrish. And join us next week for Sonic Tonic. Monday, 4 to 5 p.m. on WYXR 91.7 FM.
But if a man wine wagons, he can't see his baby ride. Yeah, boy, yeah, whining now. Keep on winding, cause I'm the best of winding town. 